everyone, and welcome to episode 253 of Greater Than Code. I am Artemis Starr, and I am here with my fabulous co-host, Damian Burke. And we are here with our fabulous guest, Jen Weber. Uh, Jen Weber is a member of the Ember.js core team and is a senior software engineer at ActLoop Technical Services. They love open source, rapid prototyping, and making tech a more welcoming industry. Jen, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you you should have gotten an email preparing you for this uh, the first and most difficult part of every appearance on Greater Than Code. Are you ready for this? I am. What is your superpower and how did you acquire it? All right. So I did get that email and I've been thinking about this for the past couple of days. I think my superpower is being able to imagine the ways that things can go well. Wow. That's very special. Thank you. How did you acquire that? So I used to be very good at imagining all of the ways that things can go badly. Those are still like the patterns that my mind walks whenever I'm confronted with a challenge. Um, But someone gave me some advice as I was recounting them all of the ways that things could go badly. They were like, what would it look like if things went well? And I've been trying to build that as like a muscle and a skill. Anytime I'm working on a new project or something hasn't gone well, something's already gone badly and I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And that can kind of like, I found that helped me open up to more creative thinking. It seems like, I mean, I I really think that is a superpower. I'm, I'm just, in order for things to go well, for us to manifest good things toward a good direction, you know, we, we have to be able to see the steps to get there, imagine ourselves walking in that direction to be able mm-hmm. to do it. And if we're caught in a loop of worrying about all the things that are going to go wrong, anticipating those things going wrong, then it's like we're going to be waiting for them and doing things that help bring those things that we don't want into being. So so if you if you find yourself in this mode, like it sounds like this is something that you struggled with and learned like this adaptive skill to break out of this pattern. So what kind of things do you you do like do you do you tell yourself things or ask yourself certain questions or how do you snap out of that mode and, and get to a better place where you're thinking about things in a sort of positive frame? Sure. I think for me like the first step is just recognizing when I'm in that negative loop and kind of accepting that it's my first reaction, but that doesn't need to be my conclusion to my thought process. And if I'm working on like, let's say like, you know, there's a a real world challenge, like just to give an example, as part of my work on the Ember core team, I might think about like, how do I engage the community and announce that there's going to be like this new version of Ember. And if I imagine things going badly, I imagine like, oh, wow, nobody even retweets it a single time. And if I imagine things going well, I think like, wow, it's this like big moment in tech. And if it was a big moment in tech, what would have the involved people done to get to that successful endpoint? Like trying to work backwards from that to connect the dots. It takes some intentionality. It takes having enough rest. It takes not being over caffeinated <laughs> to be able to unlock that kind of thinking. But it sounds so, so powerful, especially as, as an engineer or as, as an advocate, 
It's like, because we're in the role of making things into what we want them to be, Mm -hmm. which is things going well, right? Yep. And it's, it's a little different than a wishful thinking, I would say, because you're still thinking like, in order for things to go well, you have to overcome challenges, you have to solve problems, you have to prioritize, there's going to be difficult moments. And so you're not just like dreaming that this good future is going to come into existence, but actually figuring out like, what are the nuts and bolts and pieces? Like, what are the ingredients to that recipe? And when we think and reflect on that, how can we take those ingredients and apply them to like right now to get where we want to go? So you take that vision and then work backwards and translate that to actual action. These are things that we can do right now to walk the path of getting where we want to go. Mm-hmm. It might take you somewhere totally different direction. Vision might it might be very different by the time you're done, but like usually you can figure out a few things here and there that are steps in the right direction. And the right direction could be one of many different directions. Do you find yourself ever getting disappointed that things don't go the way you envisioned? Oh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a little bit part of the roller coaster of being involved in software. Like every single day is a series of, you know, things going a little different than you thought they would. You know, you read the code, you think it's going to go a certain way. You're wrong. You change your plan. You have this idea of a direction you're going to go. You've thought about like, what are the successful steps to get there? And then you end up in like the wrong corner and you have to go back to the drawing board and kind of like surviving those cycles is just part of what we do. So does that superpower help you escape those feelings of disappointment then? Oh, yeah, I think so. Because it's like, not that I have some, you know, way to see the future, but more that I have tools for helping to figure out what my next step could be. So then you're always focused back on action. Mm-hmm. Of how can I take what I learned? And this vision of what a good direction would be taking these new data points and things into account, and then reimagine and translating that back into action. Yep. I think that qualifies as a superpower. Yeah. I think about it, I guess, because I was writing code this morning. And so often, like when you're writing, when I'm writing code, at least, it's like, oh, I I think the phrase was defensive programming from a long time ago. How can this go wrong? What happens if this is nil? What happens if if some evil guy in a black hat comes in and and tries to do something here? And what I've had to learn (laughs) and still need to remind myself of is the good case. What is it that we're doing good for our users or, or whoever else the code touches? Like, what are they trying to accomplish and what, what experience are we trying to create for them? Mm-hmm. Um, so both as an engineer and a product manager, just seeing, just being able to ask that question and see an answer on a small scale, on a feature and story scale, mm-hmm. it's super, super important. Yeah. And even if you're thinking of that adversarial aspect where it's like you're trying to think through all of the security risks that are involved in developing some software, you can still kind of use this thinking to your advantage. What would a successful future be where somebody tries to exploit that vulnerability and they fail? You've got them. What are the things you built? What are the strategies and habits that that team had? What is the monitoring and infrastructure that resulted in successfully preventing this or that problem from occurring? 
it's not only a useful strategy, it also feels really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. I like that though. Just thinking or a standpoint of just vulnerability or even like a, you know, a, a, a case where things go quote wrong, you know, in the case that you do have somebody hacking your system or trying to exploit some vulnerability, what's the kind of logging and information infrastructure? What does that story look like where even though these things are happening, we're prepared, we have the right things in place to give us visibility into into what's going on and be able to catch it and address it quickly? Like, what do all those things look like such that we're ready to go and can still have a success story, even in the case of, of these challenges that come up? That sounds connected to, to something I think we want to talk about today, uh, which is, you know, what goes well when you get a major library upgrade? <laughs> what does that look like? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, kind of informed by two things. So one is that I'm involved in Ember, which is a front-end JavaScript framework, and we're getting ready to do a 4.0 major release. So going through all of those exercises to like preparedness, like all comes back to like, how do we do this? Well, what do our users need? What are the resources that are missing? That's one thing on my mind. And the other is that I've, you know, recently updated some dependencies in the apps that I work in and had a hard time. And what can I learn for myself about what to do differently? What can I learn that might be takeaways for library maintainers? What can I share with my coworkers and my collaborators to make this easier next time? What's it like working on an open source project? And how is that? How does that feel different? What are the different aspects of that from working on like a like a commercial product versus something in the open source community? There's a couple of pieces. The biggest one is that when you're working in your own code base, you have kind of like a, at least a fuzzy picture of what the product is and what the constraints are and how many users there are and the things that the developers on your team generally know and the things that they don't know. You've got, you have all this information that would help you inform how do I roll out some new big feature or something like that. And when you're working in open source, your universe of possible products and developers and users is huge. Like you could never write down a list of all the ways that somebody is going to be using that software. And so it becomes really different than having a set of like well-defined product requirements. You know, we want to get from point A to point B. It's like we need to give everybody a path forward, even though they're using this tool in all these different ways. And so to do that, it takes a lot of effort goes into gathering feedback from other people in the community. So like we use a process called RFCs or requests for comments where someone says, hey, I think this would be a good feature. Hey, I think this thing should be removed or deprecated. And you have to get feedback because we can't imagine all of the ways ourselves that someone could use this feature or tool. And then once there's consensus amongst the core team, then something can move forward. But everything goes through a lot of iteration as part of that process. And so the overall 
progress can sometimes feel kind of slow because you have to think through all of this extra weight, like the weight of like depending on thousands and thousands of developers and millions of users on you to make the right decision means we can't just, you know, oh, let's just, let's just merge this breaking change. And uh, I'll, I'll make this breaking change. And I'll just post on Slack to everybody like, hey, watch out, I just changed this one thing, I documented it here, good luck. You know, you can't really quite pull that lever in the same way. But when you do have a step forward, it's a step forward for all of these apps, for all of these projects, for all of their users. And so little little baby struts can still translate into really big impact. So when you have something that's like a major release in that context, like a major release of Ember versus a minor release, how how are those different? What kind of things do you do in major releases? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll just provide a little bit of background information on this vocabulary that we're using for anyone who's listening in. A lot of projects follow semantic versioning, which is kind of a set of rules that a lot of projects agree to follow. That um, if you ever see a version number that's like, you know, 4.2.1, oftentimes that's semantic versioning in action. And the first number is for major releases. And a major release is one that has a breaking change. So that means that I make a change in that code base. I would expect that other people would have to change the code in their own apps. And they, they would be forced to, to go through that, make that change in order to upgrade to that version for the library I'm working on. Minor is usually used for features. And minor or patch, the last one, is used for bug fixes and internal refactors, things like that. So a, not all projects follow it in the same way. Some projects have time-based cycles where they say, oh, we do a major release every six months or something like that. But uh, for us, major releases are breaking changes. And the things that are different about them is that we have to give people a path forward to get to the next version. So that could include putting some deprecation warnings, any any code that's going to get removed or changed, any APIs that are going to shift in the next major version. We want to let people know um, with a little warning if they're using those older syntaxes or APIs, whatever is going to be removed. We also want to try to give a lot of advance notice about what's going to change or be removed. Um, so via blog posts, things like you know, having a help channel set up maybe that's just for those upgrades. And when it's time to actually do the major release, we try to make it boring. And this is something that I would like to see happen across the rest of the JavaScript ecosystem. It does seem to be catching on more, which is that when you do a major version release, all it does is it removes the things that need to be removed. You make your breaking changes and that's it. And then in follow-up releases is when you add in all the new features. So like, let's say some, some API is just like the old way of doing things doesn't match up with like a new rendering engine or something like that. 
you know, you're going to want to remove the old thing and then incrementally work to roll out these like big, splashy, new, exciting features. So maybe like your exciting release is actually going to be 4.1 or 4.2 or 4.3. And this has a couple benefits. Let's your major releases be a little less risky because you're not just removing code and then adding new code at the same time. It lets people not be as overwhelmed. Like, oh, first I have to deal with all of these things that are removed or changed. And then now I also have to learn this whole new way of thinking about how to write my app using this tool. It kind of like lets you take little baby steps towards doing things in a different way. Does this mean um, in an ideal scenario that if you don't have any deprecation warnings, if you're taking care of all of your deprecation warnings, then your major release can go, you can upgrade to the next major version without a code change. Yeah, that's the dream. That does sound like a dream. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. And um, it's not always perfect, but it's an important pathway towards including more people and participating in like upgrades and app maintenance and, you know, creating like sustainable code bases. So you don't have to follow, you know, the Twitter and the blog post and like, you know, be checking the JavaScript subreddit just to keep up on like with what's going on. You know, you're not going to be surprised by big sweeping changes. So kind of coming back to like this uh, experience I had with, upgrading a different library recently, I was upgrading major jest versions and was very surprised to see that there were a ton of breaking changes in a change log. And I got a little bit frustrated uh, with that. And then I went back and I read the blog post and I saw a blog post from two years ago saying, these are the things that we are doing. This is what is happening. And that was great. But like, I wasn't doing just test two years ago. And so I missed all of that. And like, you know, can we use the code base itself to kind of connect those dots and make those suggestions and guide people towards the work that they need to do? If they put those deprecation warnings in two years ago, you would have had two years to make those changes. Yeah. And then when you finally do the upgrade, it would have a dream world been painless. Yeah. And maybe they're there. Maybe there are some and I just need to like pass a debug <laughs> flag or something. You know, hopefully there's nobody who's like shouting at their computer. But you, there's this one thing that we put it in the, you know, console log output or something. It's possible I overlooked it. But. I want to rewind a little bit back to the uh, challenge, I guess, of dealing with a product that is used in so many contexts by so many people mm-hmm. uh, like Ember is and the, the RFC process. Uh, you know, my the first thing I thought of when, when you mentioned that is, what do you do with contradictory feedback? Surely you must have hundreds of engineers who say you have to get rid of this, and hundreds who say no, this has to stay. Mm-hmm. How does how does the core team manage that? Yeah, so I think the most important piece is that contradictory feedback needs to be considered. So it's not just like oh, let's collect these comments as a kind of like uh, annual feedback forms or anything like that. <laughs> you know, this isn't like, oh, let's do some natural language processing on these comments to figure out if the sentiment is positive or negative. <laughs> None of that stuff. You have to like actually read through them and think like, what could I do using this new feature to help meet this person's needs? Or what's at the heart of the objection that they're making? If someone is saying this doesn't work for my team, 
um, and kind of entering that process with a willingness to iterate. And in the end, like we can't make everybody happy all the time or like no RFC would ever get moved forward. Like there's always going to be a point where you have to prioritize like the pros and cons. And ultimately the decision comes down to reaching consensus amongst the core team members. And so being able to say as a group, you know, we believe that the feedback has been considered. We believe that the iterations have been incorporated, the people's concerns have been addressed, or like we're going to work to create tools that make, you know, that problem be not a problem for them and find a way to move forward with uh, whatever the proposal is. Or sometimes the proposals don't move forward. Sometimes they get closed. Is the work you end up choosing to do primarily driven by this feedback process? Or do you have some visionary leadership within the core team that drives a lot of things forward that aren't necessarily coming via feedback? That's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. So certainly a lot of RFCs have come from the community um, and from people asking like, hey, can we have like this better way of doing things? I have an idea. And then other times, uh, you do have to have that visionary leadership. So to give an example, we have just started doing, well, I shouldn't say just started doing that. I think it's been like two years now. We've started doing this process called additions, where if there's like a big splashy set of cool features that are meant to be used together, we give it a name. And that's separate from the breaking changes process. Ideally, we can create nice new splashy sets of features without breaking people's apps and trying to design that experience isn't something that you can just kind of piecemeal, you know, through RFCs waiting for feedback to come through. Uh, There were quite a few members of the core team that designed a new way of building Ember apps that was better aligned with focusing on HTML as kind of the core of building for the web and focusing on JavaScript features as opposed to requiring developers to know and understand special APIs and syntaxes. You know, so you can just write JavaScript classes instead of needing to understand what an Ember object is. And so kind of aligning aligning ourselves more with the skills that everybody who works in the web has at least a little bit of And that took a lot of brainstorming and a lot of planning. And ultimately, introducing those things still follows an RFC process. Somebody still has to say, here's the thing we want to change or do or add. Here's the greater vision for it. But like to get that big picture look still requires the big thinking. Um, And so like the core team, I don't even know how much time They must have spent countless hours trying to hash out those details. How big is the core team? So there's several core teams. You say like the core team as a whole encompasses people who work on the data layer, the command line tools, the learning tools, and then like the framework itself. And I want to say, I could look this up. It's like upwards of 30 people, I think. Wow. Can get you the exact number later. (laughs) 
But yeah, everyone's kind of got their different area of domain. And so all of those teams also have to coordinate around these major releases because we want to make sure the work that we're doing is complementary. You know, if we if we do the framework improvements, but we don't fix up the docs, we're like not on the, the good path for a successful release. Are people working on this stuff full time? Are, are people funded or doing this in their free time? Or how does that work? Because I mean, there's this, you know, big picture challenge of, you know, we have this ideal of community sourced, mm-hmm. open source projects, and then the realities of trying to fund and support that effort, you know, bumps up to constraints of, needing to make a living in things and, you know, these sorts of difficulties. And how do y'all manage that? It's a mixture. So the like Ember project is fortunate to have a major player LinkedIn that's uses Ember. And so uh, some of the core team members, their work on Ember is part of their LinkedIn work. Because if the framework's doing well, then like, you know, LinkedIn projects are going to be doing well. There's also a number of people who are consultants or who run consultancies that do Ember work. They're involved. Their voice is like an important part of making sure that, again, we're serving a variety of apps, not just like, ah, this is like this tool that's just for the LinkedIn website, but it's like they've seen so many different kinds of apps. They're working on so many different kinds of apps right now. Um, And then there's people who help out on more of a volunteer basis. And so I've been in my past work, it was at a different job. It was part of my job responsibilities to participate uh, on the framework core team. These days, I'm more of a volunteer And I mostly help organize other volunteers, the people who want to do some professional development to learn, people who want to network, people who found something that they're frustrated about enough that they want to fix it themselves. And so that's kind of like how I got involved. I wanted to learn. And so that's, you know, the sustainability of like having people involved is always an ongoing challenge. It is for every open source organization, I think. Yeah. Do you have any ideas on how we can do those sorts of things better? I mean, it's kind of, as you said, it's a, it's a concern. I mean, in general with how do we, how do we do open source better with these kind of constraints? And, and then too, just, I feel like there's been some cultural shifts, I guess you could say over time of like, you think about when the open source movement first started and we had a lot more of this community ownership ideal where we really were going and building software together. And now there's a lot more of, well, there's all this free software out there that we use that we build on top of to build our apps on, but that ownership piece isn't really there. It's like an expectation that there should just be this free software out there that's maintained that we get to use. Mm-hmm. And why is it falling apart? Right. And and so I feel like like culturally just over time, some of those things have shifted as far as expectations around open source. And then, you know, you talked about some of the, you know, the corporate sponsorship aspects with usage as being one way these things get funded. But I'm wondering if you have ideas on how some of these things could work better. People have written like PhDs on this topic. I'm pretty sure like these, these I, I read a white paper 
a really involved white paper a few weeks ago that was about like the uh, what was it? It was called something like the burden of maintaining software or something like that. And it did sort of this deep dive into how much goes in and just keeping the ship afloat, like how much goes into just, you know, there's there's a, a package that needs to be updated, like that kind of ongoing, constant kind of mundane work that adds up really, really big. And so I think for very large projects, I think it's a good thing to have some sort of an involvement of sort of like a sponsor company, if you will. And and so that sponsor company may not actually ever donate any money, but the time of their engineers that they say like, hey, we're willing to help support this project is really important. Um, I think another piece is that the leadership of projects should consider the people involved, that that group is going to be rotating um, the people's involvement is ephemeral. You know, every every time somebody changes jobs, maybe they're not going to be involved in that project anymore. And if we can think about that ahead of time and plan for it, make sure that we are sharing knowledge with each other such that the project can survive somebody moving on to something else. It can survive somebody going on vacation for a while. So I think that's another key component of success is like, how do you make it so that you're not just uh, relying on like the same set of people still being there so many years later? We've been very fortunate within the Ember community that like a lot of the same people have stuck around. But like, I try really hard not to bank on that for like the group of contributors that I help organize, you know, I I think like, hey, I we have they have a chat every time somebody joins the learning core team. I say, hey, like we get that you're not going to be here forever. Please let us know what we can do to support you. Please let us know, you know, when you're thinking of taking a break or taking a step back. Please involve other people on any project that you're working on, so that they will also continue your work and also support you, so you don't get burned out. Another thing I try to do is always framing the work into how it values the contributor. And so sometimes in open source, you know, you hear this discussion of like, oh, well, everyone should participate in open source because we all benefit from it. And there's a there's a better attitude that we can have, I think, which is that for people who are interested in participating, what can they get out of it? What can I do as a leader to help them get something out of this? You know, if you just approach it with this altruism of like, this is a community and I want to help, that'll get you like a little bit. But if you can say, I want to help because I want to learn from other developers, that's something I can deliver on. That's something that um, they can take that's valuable for their future earning potential, income, confidence. Maybe they'll make the connection that helps them find their next job. You know, like even if someone isn't being paid to help out, is there something that they can take away from this? And lastly, just kind of like, you know, acknowledging that doing work for free is kind of a privilege as well. We have to reframe how we think about open source sustainability too. 
not everybody can like devote a few hours after work here and there and involving them and including them means that it's got to be part of their work day. So like continuing to socialize from the company level that like engineers should have a little bit of time here and there to try to help improve an open source project. Everybody doing that just a little bit helps with quite a few of the problems that these projects face. I mean, I've been thinking about this myself and you work directly. I mean, you're, I mean, significantly involved in a major open source project. And so you see things that a lot of people don't have perspective on. So I just, I appreciate your, your insights on this. I'm wondering what if major companies that, you know, were using open source software, if we made more efforts for companies to be a project sponsor and donate part of the company's, you know, somebody's on the company's time to help contribute to projects as like, as like a thing. I feel Mm -hmm. like if that thing caught on that the companies that were using this software for free (laughs) had more of a sense of a, a social obligation to be one of the people that contributes some time to helping with that. Mm-hmm. I get some companies that are big enough to, it's it's probably easier and more of, they have more interest in those sort of things. But I feel like if we could make that more of a thing, mm-hmm. that that would be useful. Because as you're saying, it's like somehow, somehow realistically speaking, this has to be something that can be worked into the, into the workday for us to be able to support and sustain these things Mm -hmm. and people that can do that outside of their workday as an extra free time thing. It really is a privilege. Yeah. I think um, a couple of strategies that can help here are to frame it in the value to the company and frame it into the value as a value to the users, frame it as a value to the engineering team. So rather than like having it be like, oh, you use free software, you should do this thing. Instead, more like engineers, we always need to learn constantly in order to, to keep improving our own skills and to keep up with how things that are changing. And so maybe participating, having like an open source hour or something like that. It takes a little more than an hour usually to accomplish much, but you know, having like a, a period of time that engineers are allowed to use to contribute to open source is professional development that like you don't have to pay for a subscription, you don't have to pay for a licensing fee, you don't have to pay for somebody's conference admission. It's like someone has the opportunity to reach outside of their sphere of knowledge or comfort zone. And it just so happens that if they succeed it'll benefit your company, you know, maybe indirectly. Another piece is like, what's the value to the users? So there were a bunch of people who all contributed effort towards bringing some improved linting tools for the template system within Ember. And when we think of linting tools, you know, we usually think that's like, oh, here's this thing to remind me to use like nice, tidy syntax and don't make my variable names too long and, you know, space everything out a certain way. But they can also help us find like real actual problems in our apps. So an example that this team worked on is they introduced some more linting rules for accessibility. And so Mm. if one person succeeds in introducing this new linting rule for accessibility, 
then it's there in their app for their team. And they get to stop talking about like, hey, everyone, make sure you do this one thing uh, over and over again, because now it's enforced in the code base. And also, they've brought this benefit to all of the other apps that are out there. And so again, sometimes you can tie it back in to that value um, for the product and for the users. And like, really trying to think creatively about that connection, because there's so many different things we could all spend our time on, you've really got to like, sell it in a way that aligns with kind of the goals or values of that organization. Yeah, I like that reframing. I can see just, I mean, how important that is. I mean, other things I'm, I'm thinking about, like, if you had a, a dev team, and one of your developers was really involved with the Ember core team, you'd have more knowledge about how things worked. So like when mm-hmm. something was broken or something, you would probably have more insight into what was going on and being able to help the team more effectively yep. to, to build stuff. And then if there's any sort of suggestions or things that could make things easier for your team, you'd have the ability mm-hmm. to have influence with getting RFPs through to, to get changes made and things. I think you're right. It just, it needs to be reframed to as a, as a value proposition. Yeah. And it, you know, that it also requires an attitude shift on the side of the projects as well. And there's tons of um, people who try to do open source and like hit, you know, it running straight into a wall of like, they open up pull requests that are never merged or even reviewed. And that can be a really frustrating experience. And like some projects just don't have the feedback structure or the governance structure that really allows open participation either. And so that's something that I think is an ongoing journey with lots of projects is like, how do we communicate? How do we involve other people? What types of decisions do we say like, uh, you know, hey, implementer or community, you're you're in charge. You can make this versus like things that have to pass some sort of review. And you know, it's not it's not just the one side of like companies need to step up, but also mm-hmm. like maintainers need to have a long term vision of how they're interacting with everybody else. Yeah, I really love uh, that frame of this is this is professional development, and that you can get for free. That's a really, that's like, yeah. How would you like to educate your engineers and make them better engineers, especially on the tools you work on? And, you know, not, yeah, that's, that's really awesome. But then, of course, on the other side, you need a, you need a welcoming environment. That's, mm-hmm. that's like, oh, yeah. We, when you make a contribution, we're going to look at it. We're going to give you, we're going to give you useful feedback on it. Yep. Yeah. I, I tried to get an open source project going a few years ago and, I struggled for a while and eventually eventually ended up giving up. But some of the things I ran into with, you know, I'd, I'd have somebody that would, that would volunteer to help out with things and I'd work with them long enough to just start to get a, you know, feel for things and be able to contribute. And then they would disappear. Right? And I, and I, I go through that process like a few times. Right. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, mm-hmm. yay, I'm excited. I get, you know, another person has volunteered. And so then I go and start working with them and trying to, you know, and I, I put a lot of attention into trying to get things going and then and then they disappear. And like it, it was difficult to try and get traction in that way. And eventually I kind of went, well, I'm back by myself again. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and that I just need to keep going. Right. And so, so what kind of things have you found help with getting that participation aspect going and what kind of things are barriers that get in the way that maybe we can do better at? Yeah. So my advice is always like to start with using the buddy system. So trying to pair program with people who I'm hoping to stay involved and the like leveling up version of that is if you're the people who are contributing pair with each other. It's so much more fun. There's so much more of a learning experience when it's two developers working on the project, like left to my own devices, you know, the projects that I work on, I have to like really dig into my willpower to keep them moving. If I'm the only person working on it versus like, if we're pairing kind of like, what's the value that I'm getting? It's like, I get to hear that what how that other person approaches the problem. I get to like experience how they work. They teach me things. I teach them things. We have like, you know, this like good rapport. So like I pair once a week with um, my friend, Chris and we work on everything from like this, like kind of mundane stuff to like the big vision. Like what we, what would we do if we could like totally change how this thing works or something like that. And like that kind of energy and good ideas, they build up. So that's one piece. The other, this one's difficult, but having well scoped, well written issues is a huge time sink and but also it can be one of the best ways to get people engaged and keep them engaged if i stop writing really specific issues people kind of like peter off you know someone will ask like maybe only once they'll ask hey i want to help out with something what should i pick up next they don't usually ask a second time we don't have something right away to kind of like hand off to them. Um, so kind of like, what is the momentum? Can I keep writing up issues and things that other people can follow through with and then presenting them with increasing levels of challenge of like, I have this unstructured problem. We've worked on this a lot together. You can do this. You know, what kind of, how would you approach this? What do you think we should do? I don't, I don't necessarily say, you can do this because this is, uh, you know, it's more of a subtle cheerleading that's happening than that. But, um, you know, I, I'd love to hear your proposal of what should mm-hmm. happen next is like one of is a really powerful moment. And sometimes that can be the thing that catapults somebody into taking more ownership of a project and like gathering together other people to help them out. And then like, you know, people do come and go, but like, the commits are still there. So that's something, right? <laughs> like, you know, things have taken some steps forward. Yeah. People come and go. Um, and that that's like something you, you know you have to accept on an open source project. But it happens in other places too, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like no, no team stays together for all of eternity. Right. Uh, is the project going to live on? And how can you make it so that that's so that it does. So these are, these are very good lessons even for that. Yeah. It seems like just 
investing in thinking about, you know, we were talking initially about planning for the success case, even when things happen, right? So if we think about the case of, okay, people are going to leave the team. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What's the success case look like? Imagining the way that things go really well when people are leaving the team, what, what, what does that look like? What are the things that we wish we had in place to be able to ramp people up quickly, to be able to mm-hmm. find new people to work on the project quickly, you know, all of those things that we can think about. And, you know, open source has this to a much larger degree and challenge. So, so that, you, you know, you really have to think about it a lot where on uh, like a commercial project, it's one of those things that often happens when you wish it wouldn't, you know, and a lot of things I see in corporate companies is, you know, you'll have like a management change or, you know, something will happen with the product that upsets a bunch of people. And then you'll have like exodus phase on the project and then, you know, ending up often rewriting things because you lose your core knowledge on the project and nobody knows what's going on anymore. And it actually becomes easier to rewrite the thing and to figure out how it works. And, you know, mm-hmm. if we had imagined the ways that things could go well and prepared for those, you know, sort of circumstances, maybe we wouldn't be in that situation. Yeah. You mentioned something really important there too, which is like how to, what can we do to help people spin up more quickly on something? That's another big piece of sustained engagement because you kind of just need you need a group of people spun up quickly you need a group of people who can figure out the next steps on their own and so you know we've spent a lot of time with the projects that I work most actively on making sure that everything is there in the readme making sure that you know if you run npm start that things work if you even if you're running it on a different environment, like those types of little things reducing those barriers can also go a long way. And just widening the pool of people who could potentially help is another big how do you how do you do that? Right? Because you're a core contributor on the project. You have the curse of knowledge. You yes. Have, you have a development machine that that is tightly honed to work yeah. on this project. That's a great question. I do have the curse of knowledge. So being easy to reach so that if people, you know, if people um, do encounter problems, they can find you and tell you, which can be like, it can be a small step, just like making sure that, you know, if you have a documentation page, it's got a link at the bottom. That's like, found a problem, open an issue, you know, that, that sort of thing. Also, like I'm pretty active on Twitter. And so Sometimes other contributors, experienced contributors, they'll spot something that somebody else has posted and they'll say, hey, like, Jen, take a look at this. Um, And they bring it to my attention. There's kind of like this team effort to uncover those gaps. Another aspect is just like working in the open. So having open meetings, having open chat channels, places where people can interact with the people leading the projects, they can come to the meetings, like things like that means that we're more likely to hear their feedback. And so if we get feedback, Hey, this thing was difficult, making sure that we like address it. Wow. I'm really big into user experience driven design. And so what 
I, I try, we, you know, we've been talking about like maintainability a lot. We've been talking about the code and like versions and things, but like coming back to what is the impact for our users. If you accept a user experience driven way of developing software, it means that you're always going to need to be upgrading. You're always going to have to be flexing and changing and growing because the product of two years ago versus the product of today can be really different. The open source library that you needed to rely on two years ago versus like today, maybe the web app ecosystem has shifted. Maybe there's new ways of doing things. Maybe there's new syntaxes that are available. And sometimes it can be a little frustrating because you feel like, oh, there's like this endless pile of work and we made all these wrong choices back in the day. And now this thing's hard to upgrade and all that. If a different mindset is to think about like, what do we know today that is different than what we knew yesterday? What are the things we know today about our users that inform our next move? How do these upgrades or improvements or my choice of open source library help the end user have a better experience? And like trying to come back to that big picture from time to time. Because it can be pretty frustrating, you know, when you get stuck, you think like, oh, I can't, I just tried to upgrade this major version and everything broke and everything's terrible. But like, what's the feature list look like? How am I going to use this to deliver something better to the users can really help. Wow. So at this part of the show, we usually do reflections and finish off with any final thoughts we had or takeaways from the episode. Damien, you want to start? The big takeaway I got from this is kind of its perspective. Jen, you mentioned user-driven design, and I was already uh, or user experience-driven design, and I was already kind of like really close to that language. But from a perspective of you know contributors to an open source project, sponsors, both in in terms of engineering and, and money, and then also also users, like these are also users. These are also people who who's who are impacted by the work we do. And so in order to do it successfully, uh, it's very important to think of like, how can this go well for them and then move to that direction? So that is, thank you. That, that was really great. For me, the big takeaway, I feel like I learned a whole lot just perspective wise of what it's like to work on a big open source project. I haven't really had a conversation like this with someone that's, you know, been that involved with a major open source project before. So I found that really insightful. And one of the big questions I asked you about, how do we make this sustainable? <laughs> and like all the, all the challenges around things. And I, I mean, I know there, I know there are big challenges that we've, we've faced in figuring that out. And you had some really key insights around how we can frame things differently. So as opposed to framing it as an obligation, like a social obligation or, or you should do this altruistically because it's the right thing to do as the appeal that we make is when you're talking to a contributor, how do you frame things to be a value proposition for them as an individual? When we're talking to a company how do we frame things in a way so that it's a value proposition for the company to get involved with doing something and change the way that we frame all these things to be able to get folks involved because they realize benefits as individuals, as company, as, as people being directly involved in things 
And I feel like if we can do some work to maybe change some of the framing around things, that maybe there's a, a pathway there to increase engagement and support of open source projects, which I think is one of those things that we we really need to figure out. And there's not really easy answers to that. But I feel like some of the insights you came to there are really key in finding a pathway to get there. So thank you, Jen. Appreciate the conversation. So for me, what I'm reflecting on the most is kind of the story that you shared already of trying to get people involved and like just having them leave, you know, they show up for a little while and then, you know, they disappear and kind of where does all that work go? I'm interested to explore a little bit more of that small project life cycle. I was, you know, pretty fortunate to kind of just come in at a time where there was already a well-established community when I started getting involved in Ember And like, I'd love to, you know, hear more from other people about uh, what are the success stories of those first few steps where someone began this little project and like it really started to grow and, and take off. It might be something that's, you know, this might be a case where like some of the strategies I described, they work when you already have an established community. So it's like kind of like a catch 22. I know that could be a really cool future episode is like the beginning Yeah, that's something I'd definitely like to hear about. Well, thank you for joining us, Jen. It was really a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. 